Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, right, nice thing about these 6 o'clock West Coast starts is we're home already by 10.30. Ready to record on another of these blowouts that seem absolutely inevitable when the home team loses game one. Yes, and there are a couple of different reasons that 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 this happened in game two. And what I'm going to wonder about until game three is what of the shifts that we saw in a game that the Warriors won by 27 versus the relatively close contest that we saw in game one on Tuesday is the what part of that was like the Lakers of game, game one versus game two having a rest advantage and the Warriors making more tactical adjustments, which we're going to detail for game two and what parts of it are, you know, regre- regressions to the mean that need to happen each way. And so I think the place to start is actually with the adjustments the Warriors made, which would be sound familiar to listeners to this fair podcast, because a lot of them are things you and I advocated for just two days ago. Yeah, just to track back on something you said for a second, I actually considered game one to be a blowout in the Lakers' favor. I know the Warriors made it close at the end, but I again, didn't think that that was particularly indicative of the way the game was going to go that last five minutes. And I thought the Lakers completely controlled the action and Golden State was able they to were the superior the team for all. sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, there are a lot of tactical wrinkles and I want to talk about all of them. The one thing we didn't say was starting Jermichael Green, which worked out great. I'm going to be a little more reductive here to start with. And we'll get into all those tactical wrinkles. Don't worry. I, I know you tried to set me up with them, but I, I, I wanted to just say what I thought the biggest deal was. And the biggest deal was that LeBron James and Anthony Davis didn't have the same level of defensive effort that they had in game one. And that this game was probably more set up for the game two home one, home one, game one loser yo-yo effect than about any because there's just this feeling that LeBron and AD only have a certain amount of efforts in them. They got the game they needed. Lakers stayed in it briefly early due to their shooting and then just got completely blown out of the gym and we thought that ad i thought his defensive effort has been pretty consistent in these playoffs but the offensive effort wasn't and he got completely shut down offensively but i thought you just you didn't feel him and you really didn't feel like lebron was almost invisible defensively i thought where he was so fantastic in game one also and you could chalk some of that up to the warriors spacing sure they looked at the film they made things easier but you could just tell to me even in the first three minutes of the game that the Lakers just weren't bringing it. The spiritual sibling of the play better adjustment is the opponent play worse adjustment. And the, the, <laughs> there certainly is an element of that in play here. I mean, one way of describing that is that during 
the first three quarters, which we'll call the competitive portion of the game, even though the Warriors ended that stretch up by 30, the Warriors yeah. outscored the Lakers in the paint and took more shots in the paint and had more second chance points. So it was 42 to 32 in points in the paint in the first three quarters. And the Lakers took 31 shots in the paint. The Warriors took 37. And then the Warriors had more second chance points despite shooting three of 10 on those field goal attempts um, because the Lakers only had two of seven overall there. And so that is, that's a part of it. Cause if you're, I, and there are reasons why that happened beyond LeBron and AD not playing with the same effort and execution that they did in game one, but you're right to pinpoint that as another part of this story. Yeah. And maybe there is a, a slight reason for Golden State to be worried after the first quarter when they trailed 33, 26, and then they got right back into it in the three minutes that AD sat. And then he played the rest of the competitive portion of the game well to find that is when the starters were at least out there Baham waved the white flag at the start of the fourth mercifully and wisely i would say so I, I was surprised actually given the fatigue factor that ham went back to davis that quickly uh after the non-ad minutes went so poorly but you it still felt like even in the first that the warriors were locked in on doing everything that they needed to do they had a few kind of one-off mistakes and the lakers shot it particularly well in that first quarter but they were doing everything that we had talked about that it seemed like they had talked about it as well so what were some of those changes that they made the largest that i advocated for was drawing anthony davis out onto the floor and through actions i mean the most obvious of that would be doing a pick and roll with the person that anthony davis is covering and you can either get him out and attack with that creator or you could get somebody else downhill you could reverse the side which was something I argued for, but the Warriors actually didn't have to do that as often because one of the big ways they took advantage of AD being out on the floor was just rolling Draymond Green ahead of him. And he was just, you know, they, they would create an advantage that way. Yeah, that really helped a lot. And just right at the beginning, Draymond got to the basket a couple of times, got fouled, although he missed both of the free throws. And by setting those screens higher out on the floor, or also actually getting guys moving laterally a lot more. That's another way that you can open up a little bit of space behind the play that they just forced AD to get out there and move. They weren't as deferential. They decided they're just going to run their stuff, more stuff on the ball. And he was fantastic passing it with 12 assists in 30 minutes in this game and really controlled the action that way. And so by forcing AD out on the floor, they're able to get guys behind him, quick slips to the rim through Draymond. And then the other thing was it wasn't Looney setting that pick and roll. It was almost always going to be Draymond. And Draymond is just faster getting on top of the basket. He makes better decisions behind the play than Looney. He's not going to have to just come to kind of a two-foot jump shop and then make the distribution. He can make that play more on the move. Looney's gotten much better as a distributor, but he still is not Draymond Green, who's one of the best to do it in that circumstance. And then the Lakers didn't have LeBron behind the play. And I, I thought, again, you, you got an idea of what LeBron's defensive effort was going to be with some of those just wide open corner threes that Jamichael Green was getting and just with LeBron just like yeah just go ahead and shoot that it's like yeah Jamichael Green is like a has a pretty decent record as a shooter in this league like, you can't just give this guy wide open well, corner threes especially yeah. when you're not taking anything specific away by doing it like there, these weren't circumstances where LeBron is trading a contested layup for an open three like there were times where he's just kind of meandering a little bit like it he is a very good help defender 
Snyder, but I thought there were times where he wasn't trying to be two places at once. He was kind of being one. Oh, and yeah, one just, stat yeah. on that kind of how that led to Warriors ball movement. During those first three quarters, the Warriors had 34 assists on 42 made baskets. Yeah, and they really were setting up the catch and shoot game. They got the Lakers in rotation and the Lakers aren't amazing in rotation. Like they're pretty good on the ball, but they don't have a ton of length or great closeout guys necessarily who are going to run you off the line once those passes are open and that enabled Clay Thompson to get going with eight of 11 from three-point range. Uh, He was absolutely on fire and uh, had 30 points in 31 minutes. He was fantastic. Uh, Andrew Wiggins shot it well. Green shot it well. Curry, interestingly, only got up five three-point attempts. And the Warriors, I think, made half at one point were 14 to 28 from three. And Steph had only taken two three-point attempts. So he he only took three in the first three quarters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He just took a couple like right in that place. Right. And right at the start of the fourth. While we're talking about this general concept, another point that I didn't articulate after game one is that running those actions, the primary brunt of it for me is to get Anthony Davis on the floor to, to do those things is that Jared Vanderbilt is a good defender, but he's not the best at navigating screens like that's he, he's done it at times in his career, but he's he's not that really that kind of defender he doesn't have the reps that's not the strength of his game. Yeah. And he, so he's better better. Uh, he's better off the ball than on the ball, I would say. Exactly. And so yeah. and so it put it puts the you know defenders good and bad alike have different strengths and weaknesses within their overall skill set and so you by involving his person Stephen Curry in more screening actions then you take out one of the better parts of Vanderbilt's game the Warriors also did a better job of handling some of the like early pressure that the Lakers were doing like in in those situations um, yeah, they had a couple little little tricks set up for that where if they were going to deny Steph the ball in bounds, they would just throw it in to somebody else and then have Steph run up the floor with Schroeder now behind him and, and Steph just on one play, never let him get back in front and then just fed Looney for a layup. So they they at least had some counters set up uh, to that. Um, I would say as much as the, late, the Warriors offensive fireworks stole the show and they got to the basket more, still missed some around the rim but and they did enough to where it's like man we just can't have an efficient game right like because in they got up over 53s in that first game and made 40 percent. usually that's a recipe for a pretty efficient offensive night and until the very end they just got nothing because they didn't ever get to the foul line and they didn't ever get to the rim and actually finish there so they Stop being so scared of LeBron and AD at the precise moment that those guys weren't playing nearly as well. And, of course, they spaced the floor out a little bit more through Jermichael Green and bringing Looney off the bench. There's talk that Looney was sick, only ended up playing 12 minutes. They they were were limited him to 20 in theory if if the game had been close. So... But uh, starting green would have been, I think, the right move anyway. But what did you think of the idea at first and then how it worked out to start Jermichael Green rather than any of the other options? Poole probably most prominent among them. I thought it was an indication of the Warriors having an idea that makes sense of more floor spacing and ideally not somebody who is an absolute sieve defensively. But it also was it illuminated the limitations of this Warriors roster compared to last year, where they had somebody like Otto Porter who could who could fill that role. And Otto Porter is not only not on the Warriors, but also not healthy this year. And so I thought Jermichael Green's limitations were going to be more present and they ended up that ended up not being the case. And so will it work in future games? 
I'm not sure, but the idea behind it makes sense. And the Warriors have gone to Draymond Center. They've gone smaller a lot over the course of series for different reasons. And one of the other reasons why that worked, and Kevin O'Connor of The Ringer had this, is that Draymond was the primary defender on Anthony Davis for about a third of the possessions in Game 1. That went up to 62% in Game 2. And Draymond is better defensively. And I don't think that's the reason why AD went from having a very strong game one to a very strong game two, but it definitely made his life harder. And then you think about what that can do on the offensive end as well, where there aren't as many places to hide. And I am sure the Lakers will have wrinkles prepared in case Jermichael Green plays a significant role, though it is also important to note that Jermichael Green played 12 minutes and 32 seconds in this game. So while it is notable that he was out there, he also wasn't, you know, the centerpiece of everything, despite having 10 points in the third quarter. Yeah, 15 points in 13 minutes for him, 3 of 6 from downtown, but also 3 of 3 from 2. And mm-hmm. that, that was important. So, yeah, AD certainly could have played better. But if you think about how he was able to get going in Game 1, part some of that was mid-range, and Kerr said, hey, we're just going to have to live with those shots, and he missed a few more of those. And there was maybe going to be a regression there. He did shoot extremely well from not only the upper paint, but like pretty close to the free-throw line. But Draymond, I thought, had a lot to do with that. Again, you never know exactly why a guy misses a shot, but Draymond, he's just he just surprises guys with his contest. He's got long arms. He just moves so quickly in short areas. And so the Lakers pick and roll game where they were able to find him so easily in game one, number one, they couldn't get in the ball as well. Why was that? Number one, Draymond is in a drop coverage. They weren't switching, but he's playing the cat and mouse game, faking towards the ball handler. He's got very active hands. And so that if AD tried to get all the way to the basket for like an alley-oop, you know, that wasn't really there. And if they tried to get it to him shorter kind of at the free throw line draymond had the quickness to get back out there and still get a reasonable contest uh, on those shots of course the warriors also did a much better job of doing what we're advocating for after game one which is play this series not the series against the kings when the scheme was basically just we're gonna play sabonis one-on-one and let him beat us and he wasn't able to do that in large part but they brought guys way over from the weak side and the other thing they also did is they forced the lakers towards the baseline more with their ball handlers and so then it's just easier not only to get help coming across the lane to take davis's role but it's much harder to throw a pass to the weak side to see guys open a lot of times maybe that's not a great shooter as well uh, although Rui Hachimura was able to knock down a ton of shots uh, for the Lakers out of situations like that in this game and he's now I don't know ex- exactly what he is now but at one point he was 23 of 39 from three in in these playoffs incredible uh, so uh, pretty impressive there and, and he had 21 points although we'll talk a little bit more about his role in a second I think the words were just way more locked in on bringing help from the weak side I thought Dante DiVincenzo so some people are grumbling about his shot selection. He was two of eight from downtown, but I thought he was really good as that nail defender coming over and then uh, helping in control the defensive glass as well, getting some tips. The Warriors just had way more energy there. And so they just didn't get into these compromised positions where they were fouling. They also were just were able to avoid giving up a ton of right-handed drives to Dennis Schroeder. They're more locked in on that. Schroeder had eight free throw attempts, or I'm sorry, 10 free throw attempts in game one of those, two of those 
those were right at the end and he didn't even have a field goal in this game in 19 minutes and that's very important because he's easily the guy who gives Steph uh, the most problems I would say defensively although playing on the ball makes that a, a lot easier because he's he's tough to beat off the ball and has drawn it he's drawn an offensive foul off the ball on Steph in two straight games now so yeah there's a, a lot going on there for Golden State that worked really well anything else that stuck out to you just a second, I'm gonna check my notes. Oh, the Warriors running off of makes. Like they, yep. they they did that more aggressively. There was a point in the first quarter where both teams were doing it more aggressively, but then the Warriors continued more successfully along that path. And I because it's gonna gonna mention it in every game that matters in the first three quarters of this one, clean the glass. 167 offensive rating for the Warriors in transition, 46.2 for the Lakers in transition. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And the Lakers, they do try to push the ball up as well, but didn't really get much out of it. I mean, something something else that I think is important for the story of this game. LeBron had 21 in the first half and then two at just a disaster of a third quarter where one of five from the field, missed all three of his threes, also got a technical, looked for a second like he might get tossed, which would have been, I believe, the first time he's ever been ejected ejected from a playoff game. LeBron, from what I could tell, has only ever been thrown out of two games ever. And you brought up the defense before, but like he was, he and Rui Hachimura had that big first half. Like they were big parts of that run and they combined for seven points in the third quarter. And by that, but, and then by the end of that, it was over. Yeah. LeBron's final minute of the third quarter, it was already decided then, but he missed the three, got teed up for complaining that he got fouled on the three. Then he fouled Moses Moody on a corner three, demanded that Ham challenge. It doesn't matter, obviously, because the game was over, but he demanded that they challenge. He clearly fouled him. Moody makes two free throws. Then AD just throws the ball away all the way down to the other end, the rarely seen out-of-bounds play where it doesn't touch anyone and goes right back to the same spot. So the Warriors get another base on out-of-bounds, and then Moody just cuts right in front of LeBron along the baseline after all these subs came in. It was pretty hilarious that they were, all right, we're going to bring Clay in. We're going to bring Steph back in. We're going to bring Draymond back, back in. And then they misdirected it, and Moody just cut right in front of LeBron for a big dunk to put him up 30. I thought, I mentioned AD and his defensive activity. I could be a little more specific about that. He had talked after game one when he had that amazing performance about the cat and mouse game that he was playing. You just didn't see that level of activity. It was more just this kind of technically fulfilling his assignment of getting out there, but not faking towards his man, getting back to towards Draymond Green and making sure that he could still impact Green on the roll, right? He's just kind of getting out there. Okay, I did it. I, I executed the coverage. But he wasn't doing it with energy, with effectiveness, in an unpredictable manner. He was just sort of doing everything rotely. And that's not going to be good enough against the Warriors because, as you noted so many times, they have cues that if you play it this way, we're going to play it this way. And he still didn't have, I would I would say, is a bad defensive game. He had some blocks, got his hands on some balls. Like it wasn't like he was getting lit up or anything, but he wasn't at the same superhuman level of activity when he was involved in the action. And some of that may be that just the overall human letdown it could be he just didn't have and knew he didn't have the same level of energy at the start of the game and was conserving in case it was close late or it could be that the Warriors just involved him in so many more actions and actually tired him out it's a combination of many many of these things man it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 
2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us
Anything else you want to talk about here? Can we talk about how, like, Moses Moody is all of a sudden this rotation stalwart for Steve Carr? As somebody who thought Moses Moody was a good prospect when he was drafted, thought he played reasonably well most of last year, had some specific flaws. I, I It surprised me that he was basically out of the rotation so much this year. And he, you know, capable rebounder, has some flaws defensively, and can hit open shots at a reasonable rate. And I thought He's he did. He's basically the backup three. He's basically point. the backup three, but one of the funny things, and eventually I think Steve Kerr might come to mind on this, that also could get dictated by the front office, is that I think Moses Moody is a significantly better fit for the Warriors than Jordan Poole if Stephen Curry is on the floor. Because Jordan Poole will, he he adds things, but he also takes a lot of things away. And he he did plenty of that in game two as well. He had some some poor decisions and he's just abysmal defensively. I mean, there was, there was a play where Dennis Schroeder, you know, I'm sure they talked about it a lot in the meeting, considering how much how much we on. I mean, you and I know Dennis Schroeder's game anyway. Like, don't give up the easy right-handed drive, and he gets isolated against Dennis Schroeder, and Dennis Schroeder goes straight to the right-hand drive, and Poole lets him go, and then he gets a foul. And five fouls in 16 minutes for Poole. He's <laughs> going to average five fouls a game in the series. He very well could. And I, I think that the so the idea with Moody is he's he's not he doesn't have the fireworks that that Jordan Poole does, but you don't really need fireworks, particularly when Curry and Draymond are on the floor together. What you need are players who don't mess things up, who can do enough to keep the defense honest. And that's, you know, that in many ways, that's the Otto Porter Jr. role. That's the ideally Gary Payton or David West, if you want to go back and for the rares. And it, the, the funniest part about the Warriors is it doesn't quite matter what height that player is as long as they check a few basic boxes. And Moses Moody, I think, could do that. The biggest problem that I had with Moody's game was his inability to stay in front of guys, and the Lakers haven't tested that too much. I think that would be a, a big adjustment is to go after him, go after Jamichael Green, obviously more of Poole as well. Like They had Moody as their backup defender on LeBron behind Andrew Wiggins, and LeBron got him for one of that left-to-right spin move in transition, which is a difficult situation for any guard with LeBron coming downhill, but... I think that's certainly a matchup that the Lakers should try to exploit more than they have. If again, LeBron has the energy to do that, just that they haven't really gone that direction. LeBron had this great opening half, but most of it was through the jump shot. He hit that crazy three at the end of the shot clock. He hit his first two threes as well, where he's just been way off from downtown really this year. And, and certainly in these playoffs and was one of eight in game one and got a few more going with the mid ranger than he has as well. Although he was hitting the mid-ranger summit in game one as well. And Poole, yeah, he just had a number of awful defensive mistakes in this one. And he still doesn't really want to play in transition. I did like that the Warriors just benched Peyton. There wasn't really a great place for him. And went with DiVincenzo, who's good enough against these Lakers guard, but also adds the shooting component. They're both pretty good rebounders. Clay got on fire, so the Lakers decided to start switching off-ball screens with guards. And then Steph got a backdoor out of that that'll be interesting of how the lakers want to deal with screens that you would normally switch off ball they really have kept it simple and not done that in part because they feel they have ad who will get there for the eventual screen to step out and retreat or to take away any back doors but it'll be interesting to see if the lakers try to switch that up a little bit any other laker adjustments you might suggest going in game two I think they should consider starting Schroeder and seeing how that works. Because like Vanderbilt... Over who? Over Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. Yeah. Just try it out. See that. And that might 
it might be too drastic a shift, but tr- experimenting. Well, you know, the, if they if the Warriors do start Jamichael Green, I think that actually could work very well because the reason that Jamichael Green works is he can hang out on Bando. And now another adjustment I would say uh, this would actually work great with what you're talking about is get AD matched up against Jamichael Green, and I think a AD could post him up, but also you could get just taking the Warriors' best pick and roll defender out of the action because Draymond was unbelievable defensively tonight i think would, would be pretty useful to say if we can get this matchup you know, screen big to big and then try to get ad going and pick and roll against michael green because michael green's not great laterally and not a great rim protector and not a great pick and roll defender so he can't really execute a drop coverage whereas draymond can execute any coverage that's ever existed so that that's something i would do and i think if they started shooter then that also would really mess up the matchups a lot and you probably would end up then with if Jamichael green would have to guard he would have to guard braun i guess if they wanted to keep dream on an ad in those circumstances or i mean yeah, the, the warriors, the warriors would yeah. probably go with a different fifth guy but none of their other ones yeah. are great fits like maybe they would go with gary payton in that sort of a circumstance yeah, the the Warriors also went with Clay on D'Angelo Russell, and Russell caused some problems. Got a bunch of fouls on Steph with his bullshit foul drawing game, and but then he finished five of twelve in the end. He wasn't able to quite hit enough shots to really cause a problem for the Warriors the way that they were playing offensively in this one. Another really interesting thing: Rui was playing great, and so they closed the half with him over Vanderbilt. It was Schroeder, Russell, Rui, LeBron, and AD, and then Steph got his third foul and got taken out but the Warriors still smoked him at the end of the half in part because that just fucks up the the Lakers matchups too much I don't think they can play unless the Warriors are maybe they could do it with their starting group like that actually might be another thought is to start Rui uh, the way he's shooting the ball because you can get away you could put Rui on Andrew Wiggins LeBron can take Jermichael Green or, or vice versa and then AD be on Draymond if that's the way they wanted to play it and then you can get Rui shooting and scoring out there with the first unit and then actually even it might make more sense to go with Schroeder and not start Russell but they're not going to do that they're, they'll stick with their starting group but that could be an interesting closing group or not a closing group because that if the Warriors are going Draymond at center and Wiggins at the four, then Rui has to guard Clay Thompson or Steph Curry or maybe Jordan Poole or another guard, and that that's just not going to work. So or then or then that forces Russell onto Clay Thompson. But but there are, there are plenty of middle middle of the game lineups that I think yeah. it could it could totally work. No, actually, I got interviewed by someone from Japanese TV just asked me about the game and Rui's is interested in Rui's performance and he said you know should Rui be playing more and I was like yeah he's great on offense but yeah it's really tough in this series to play him lebron and ad all together with the guards that the warriors have because that that makes one of those guys have to guard one of those guys and and that's that's not going to work very well jordan Poole also had in an innovative ish foul where he pushed anthony davis while anthony davis was in the air trying to get a tip and that led to davis being called for basket interference so you, <laughs> you take the two points off the board but jordan Poole gets a foul it was i I've, i don't think i've ever seen it before where a foul led to a basket interference but it was both parts of it were properly adjudicated yeah less exciting was the pool just two hands shoved to the chest and <laughs> Vanderbilt. And he was, 
like the most obvious push off file that's ever existed. And I think yeah, it's, it's also hilarious that especially pool, but a lot of the Warriors don't yet fully understand how aggressive not only just the Lakers guards, but also Jared Vanderbilt are selling things to get calls. It's like, yes, this is how the rest of this series is going to go. LeBron doesn't do that too much. AD is AD falls over, but for different reasons. But Schroeder, Russell, Reeves, Vanderbilt. Am I forgetting anyway? Those are the four no. primary guys. Like they do a lot of that. Like that's just it's a part of it. And some of it is grifting. Some of it is savvy. It's sometimes hard to tell between the two, but you need to get used to what your opponent does. And Jordan Poole's still not. Also, it was a foul anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and it's all just because he didn't want to bother actually making a hard cut to get open because that would take energy, even though he had j- literally just come in the game, <laughs> I think at that point. So uh, that's, I think the biggest keys going forward here, the energy level of LeBron and AD, and technically they only have to do it three more times, not five more. And so that's big. Can the Lakers get back? to being a dominant interior defense that'll be harder with the the warriors spacing warriors are going to have games where they don't shoot the shit out of the ball the way they have but that's kind of i don't there's nothing you can really do about that strategically i would say and then what's going to happen with the laker guards they need to be better passing the ball the warriors really were packing the paint on the backside of these pick and rolls they got to find that shooter on the weak side much better than they did they got to find ways to not get directed towards the baseline and some of these pick and rolls to where they have more passing angles available and maybe more of those double drag sets or even starting guys in the corner and handing off that being able to turn the corner more the open side pick and roll we didn't see as much of tonight but that's the Warriors did a good job of directing the ball and, and when you force the guy towards the baseline then you can't really get that open side pick and roll so they need more sets to get their guards going downhill and of course getting any of them matched up on the likes of pool or getting Jamichael Green as the big defender in pick and roll those are the guys that they're going to want to target a little bit more and of course the foul drawing game with russell reeves they've actually done a great job of backing off when reeves has a drive and just forcing him to make the shot and not fouling him he's always body hunting for contact and they were actually really locked in on that in this game uh they're less locked in on the russell rip move type of stuff and then schroeder with his right-handed drives as well he didn't really take or make any mid-rangers to today either but if those two if the two of those three guys those guards can get going and could take advantage of pool and staff on the perimeter in pick and roll and of course having draymond there made everyone's lives a lot easier rather than looney as defending ad and they didn't have to worry as much about ad's gravity then i think the lakers will look really good and and if those guys play well then the lakers might even be favorites in those games but if the warriors can continue to shut those guys down as they did tonight then i think the it's advantage warriors i have come around more to your line of thinking that this is going to be a long series. I expect the Lakers to win at least one of the two at home in the next run. The AD and LeBron will put together. The sequencing of the series is definitely now at their disservice. They had the advantage for game one, but I don't think they do at any point subsequent, depending on injuries that happen between now and then. But I expect them to summon it for for one of those games, if not more. And then we'll, we'll have to see what happens. But I mean, this series, I think this series still has more ebbs and flows left. Well, one person who will not be experiencing the ebbs and flows of a series again with the Milwaukee Bucks is Mike Budenholzer. He was relieved of his coaching duties today, had two years at $8 million a pop left on his contract. What do you think? It is 
extremely unlikely, not impossible, but extremely unlikely that the Milwaukee Bucks next coach is as good of a coach overall as Mike Budenholzer. Like, and you want to do coach rankings, you want to do it that kind of way. But the Bucks next coach has one huge advantage depending on roster, but I expect it to be this way. They don't have to build the system. What they have to do is make some tweaks, ideally make some in-series adjustments and work within that. So I'm, you know, it's funny, you and I never really had these conversations after the Bucks were eliminated by the Heat. I had come around on the idea of firing Budenholzer on, on the idea that you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Now, it depends on what Chris Middleton does, what Brooke Lopez does, all these types of things. But the table is already set. And so you don't have to bring in a coach that is as good as Budenholzer. You just have to bring in a coach that can, with their staff, can make the, can, can see what's going on and work from there. That said, I'm sympathetic to Budenholzer. I think he has done a wonderful and overall underappreciated job with the Bucks. I mean, they went from the worst coach in the league to one of the best. And we saw the difference. The proof was in the pudding, especially regular season-wise. And I think Budenholzer, whenever he wants to, can do that again with another franchise. But the big thing here, and I'm guessing this is where you're going to go with it, is there is an obvious way that Budenholzer would not get fired. And the fact that he did indicates that the cornerstone of the franchise was ready for a change or at least not not ready for a change sure (laughs) and this is where i get to break out one of my favorite phrases with coaching hirings and firings mostly firings deserve ain't got nothing to do with it from unforgiven also in the wire as well it's not about okay well here's uh mike budenholzer's record he's coach of the year in the 18 19 season they won 60 games and they overperform expectations every year how could you fire he doesn't deserve to be firely he's doing he's doing a good job overall they, they had the best record in the league and all of the things may be true but as i said when there was talk of maybe firing him right after the series the inquiry is what is going to be the best decision to help the milwaukee bucks win basketball games and more importantly championships potentially in the future and if it were just about winning as many games as you could in regular season i would be hard pressed to find a coach that's better than him but and it's kind of the same way with Frank Vogel, right? Like he had a couple of great years and then they had this rough year and he got fired and he probably got fired because number one, LeBron was maybe a little sick of him. And there's no, not an indication that Giannis is feeling that way, but as good of a coach as Frank Vogel is, clearly the Lakers have been better off with Darvin Ham, who I think has done a, a fantastic job. I, ironically, Ham was a assistant under Mike Budenholzer. And so I don't know who they're going to bring in. There's certainly risk that they won't get someone as good. There's also risk that whoever they get is going to get silenced because... There's Do you want to clarify that. what being silenced is? I know I, I know what it is, but... Yeah, I, yeah, I was, I, was, I was getting there. So it was that... Steven Silas came in and thought he was coaching James Harden and Russell Westbrook, and uh, no, he wasn't. And so maybe with the Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton can leave if they want to, and Giannis has couple years left on his contract but also if he requests a trade you imagine that that request would be granted at some point i I don't think that's going to happen within the first year of this job but if things go poorly you could see it potentially happening after that and 
So we'll see. Is Nick Nurse, in theory, would be exactly what the doctor ordered because there's a system in place already. And this is a veteran group. I don't think they need that much hand-holding. And you kind of know who's going to play for these guys. And he's been a pretty innovative tactician in the playoffs. But it's it's pretty remarkable that every championship winning coach since 2016, who's not Steve Kerr, has now been fired. Since 2014. Well, Pop was 2014, right? Yeah, I guess since 2014. And But Kerr won it in 15, so that's why I won it in sure. 16. But, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see who they get. Uh, but ultimately, if Bud had this reputation for not adjusting the playoffs, like that's even something that foreign players have said about him. And I think he, I was talking to a coach about this today, and he said, not a head coach, but but a, a assistant in the league and he made a good point which was sometimes you just have to adjust so the team will believe mm-hmm. even if you don't think it's that much better just so you feel like you're doing something differently so you're not it's not just rinse wash repeat and there are also the that's something that that lack of adjustment you can argue is something that particularly could lead to so many of these devastating fourth quarter playoff collapses from double digits that have happened on Budenholzer's watch. And maybe that does the fact that you're not adjusting leads to a sense of inevitability among your players that, oh no, we're fucked here. Like we, like things have turned against us and nothing is changing to allow us to change it. And when you just one note of like, all right, let's do what we're doing better. That's of course the idea. Oh, he doesn't adjust. He doesn't adjust. That's probably too facile of an analysis. But it's also not, he's not adjusting enough to where they're losing in a different way. (laughs) At least lose, lose in a different way than with Boston, where Grant Williams has taken 18 threes or Miami, where Jimmy Butler only got double teamed seven times in the whole series, despite having like one of the best playoff games that we've ever seen. So yeah, let's see who they got. And if the, but if the players didn't believe anymore, that makes this an obvious firing. And maybe it would have gotten to that point because they just had too many collapses, even though he won the championship and and also i guess i would say this too danny the whole oh he's a champion championship coach like how can you fire him we've been beating the drum that that flags fly forever but that that championship in 21 wasn't necessarily predictive of future results and as it turned out it was not they've lost in the second round and they've lost in the first round in five games since that point so maybe that is again that bud should have this armor of the championship like that no i think that's again it's about having the milwaukee bucks win basketball games in the future not what's fair to mike budenholzer does he deserve to be fired or not very true all right john and i will be going tomorrow and danny and i are doing playback tomorrow a couple of big game threes and so we'll do the end of sixers boston if it's close and then we'll maybe see the end of this phoenix sun season effectively that'll be a fascinating one down two zero as well so i hope you'll join us there and of course we'll be potting after those games bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. All right, coming to you on a Thursday morning Pacific time. and. Let's start. We'll talk a little bit about the game from last night. It wasn't exactly a barn burner the way game one was. Uh, Joel Embiid also officially won MVP. We can discuss that. Uh, we did do the game for playback up until maybe the end of the third quarter when it was uh, slightly out of reach by that point. It almost seemed, Danny and Joel kind of said this after the game a little bit. I mean, I'm sure they would have loved to have won and blah, blah, but that the point of this was let's just get this return getting back up to speed out of the way and probably lose a game we were going to lose anyway. It almost seemed like that was the, that's uh, how they felt. It, it did feel that way. And I thought, like, the, to me, the most important thing about Game 2, once it was announced that it was available, was how does Joel Embiid look? And I thought that he seemed to be moving reasonably well. It is completely understandable that his stamina wasn't all the way up when you consider a knee injury. It's very hard to keep your conditioning at the level it needs to be, but he had pretty good agility, had a nice play where he just smoked Al Horford, had five blocks. I believe all of those were in the first half, but maybe one of them was in the third. Um, But, like, he was moving well enough. So that part of it... I thought like the most important thing went and he didn't it doesn't seem like there was further injury. So like the most important thing went well for Philadelphia. Most of the other things didn't, but I want to start there. Yeah, I think there certainly given the layoff he said after the game it's a four to six week injury normally. I think he's coming back in less than three. I think it's less than two. How long has it been? Let's actually figure that out. Game three of the net series was Thursday, April 20th. So that game was played less than two weeks after the injury. Okay. He did have a brace uh, on the knee. And when you consider all of those facts and that lens of like uh, he had this injury and like, man, it's actually pretty good that he's back. And for how well he was moving, considering all that. Yeah, I think if you take that lens, maybe it's a positive. If you take the lens of is he going to be good enough for them to win this series and win an NBA championship? Then I don't know. I mean, now it would have been probably unrealistic to expect that he, particularly in the first game, would look like that. But it just, particularly for a guy who 
He's not Nikola Jokic in terms of the way that he gets the ball and the ways the the multiple ways that he's able to attack. He's improved that some, but he just didn't seem like and maybe this will build up as well that he just had the stamina to dominate the stamina to get the ball in his spots and the Nets even kind of took him out of that in the first round but of course they opened up all this other stuff that Philly was able to take advantage of but Grant Williams Al Horford like those guys kind of leaned on him a little bit I thought his effectiveness waned as the game went on he was definitely going to be able to give them something on defense you know that seems obvious I thought he moved well getting out to shooters so like he's a, a guy who I think is going to help them for sure. Is he going to be able to be dominant MVP and beat? I, I would say just knowing the nature of his injury, I didn't, my prior was no, he's not going to get there because he's hurt. And I thought yesterday was an encouraging step for him to be able to play and like not be bad, but also not necessarily an encouraging step. Like, oh, he's going to get back to like the absolute dominant guy that they need to get to where they want to go this season. That's a part of why the admission from Embiid, and I appreciate his his candor in this, that it's a you know four to six week injury, but he felt good enough to play. That illuminated a couple of different things for me. And it was part of it was this idea of like, okay, well, really, where is he in this recovery? And he, he looked better than I expected. But the idea that it's going to take a while for him to be right. And when you kind of factor in all the other things that you have to tone down, you know, he's, this is all being set up for him to play rather than fully recover, build up everything else. You know, it's, it, that, that's what you're prioritizing. And when you do that, I, one of my big questions was, I, I, was, well, why now? Because the Sixers won game one. Like, it's a very different circumstance. You could parallel it with Jimmy Butler. Like, it's a very different circumstance when you win game one. When you get that advantage, you take home court back. And I had thought, my hope was that basically I had these two tracks. One was, well, that means he's good enough to play because you wouldn't play him if he weren't. The other one was the, I, I, I refer to this with Kevin Durant, where it's the probably shouldn't play, but is playing for whatever reason otherwise. And I freak out whenever a player is in that circumstance, not that Embiid's injury and Durant's injury are the same for when this is Durant in the 19 finals for risking future things and everything else. But the idea that Embiid, whether it's initiated by him, the medical crew approval and all that, we don't know, it, it gives me some ominous feelings. Yeah, who knows, right? Like, James Harden could be a free agent. Like, if, if they totally flame out and Houston offers him some big contract and Philly doesn't want to match it, obviously they didn't want to give him a, a huge contract last year. And so did he do enough and he's a year older to merit that now? Or maybe there just wasn't the competition last year for his services. Like, this is a – these chances don't come along very often. But yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's hope that this doesn't lead to further injury. I think there there is a concern there. But I also I also think he wasn't laboring so much that Agreed. I was as concerned about that. Whereas KD, you could tell that like he really couldn't push off, and then they're like, oh yeah, let's just have him bring the ball up against pressure. Uh, let's uh, get to the rest of the game here, and I guess my question to you now on this one is aside from Embiid coming back and how he looked what else did we learn if anything for this game and is this a all right 15 times in a row the home team losing game one they win game two often in a blowout or and don't take anything away from this other than that it's tied 1-1 or do you take away that Philly might have some problems here Philly might have some problems here and it mm-hmm. You, you look at the kind of the series in its totality and you kind of regress in many ways both games to the mean. You have a high watermark 
for Philly. Harden played great in game one. The defense did better and, or in some ways more accurately, Boston's offense did worse. And then despite Embiid having those five blocks, despite Embiid doing a much better job long off the paint than the Sixers did, especially in the first half of game one, the Celtics were still able to have immensely successful offense. They basically never turned the ball over. They were able to get good shots. They had a 120 half-court offensive rating. And the Celtics put up, they put up a 131 offensive rating in the first three quarters, despite being shockingly inefficient in transition. And typically, especially with the Sixers, defenses aren't doing a lot of that. That's, you know, missed shots and everything else like that. So there wasn't, this wasn't a game with a ridiculous amount of transition. It had a fair amount. So for me with Boston, sure. Are they going to shoot 20 and 51 from three every game? Not necessarily, but getting up 53s, not having a huge free throw disparity, winning the possession game. All of those elements are at least reasonably in place enough that, I mean, I picked the series Celtics in five. This is more in line with my priors than game one was. Now, does that mean I'm going to pick it in five right now? No, not necessarily, because all Philly has to do is pick off one game. But I think it's still pretty clearly advantage Celtics in the series. So many things happened in this game that each side can argue won't be repeated and that it benefits them. Philly could say, hey, we shot six of 30 from downtown. Harden didn't make a three. Only had 12 points. The During really the competitive portion of the game, they had made two three-pointers, finishing six out of 30. How many threes did they shot through through three quarters? Because I remember it wasn't many. I think they were... 21. Maybe, okay. there were, so there that, were four that's of not 20. a Yeah, that's not a great number. Celtics got up 51, and they're on pace for well, that. And if we want to compare it, it was 37 to 21 at the end of the third in terms of attempts. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So we say we only had 13 assists in part because we couldn't make a three and Joel is just going to play better going forward here. And Boston was really motivated because being down one zero playing at home. On the other hand, Boston could say, well, we just won a game by a gazillion points that Jason Tatum played 19 minutes and was one of seven from the field. Why is it then that you feel it's this is more predictive from a Boston standpoint than a Philly standpoint? I thought Boston played well below their standards offensively in game one. And so for kind of factoring that in, we also saw a more aggressive Jalen Brown, particularly in the first section of game one of game two. And I thought that was really important. He had 13 points on five of six in nine minutes in that first quarter was getting downhill. And when you consider that he did a lot of that well, Embiid was in the game. I thought it was impressive there. And Philly just doesn't really have the personnel to slow down this Boston attack other than the things at the rim. And that's the fundamental difference between the Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets is that even if you shut off the rim against the Celtics, they can still generate good shots. They can still make those shots and they have enough secondary tertiary creation to get there. Yeah, Tatum hasn't really had a, had a great last five quarters or so. He was uh, fantastic in game one, but that was uh, without Embiid. Yeah, I think Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon are the two guys that the Sixers can struggle with because they don't really have an answer for the way those guys want to play with just their hard driving. Brown was fantastic shooting the ball as well on some of those DHOs 
and Brogdon just the way he's doing exactly what they brought him here to do definitely had the three ball working in this game and it was only one of five from two but I still thought that I mean he's always been a 40% three-point shooter so that's getting up 10 is surprising because he hasn't been at the highest volume guy but he's going to make the ones generally that he's allowed to shoot he's looking pretty good physically which is always a question for him coming off the bench seems to have really helped him throughout the season there and just his quick decision making and hard driving his passing isn't unbelievable but the fact that he gets the ball and he either shoots it and goes immediately is big for the Celtics team the other thing structurally that's built into this series is Philly just has absolutely nobody to force turnovers and playing you know Paul Reed might have been one of their best guys for that and now that Embiid is out there he walls off the rim pretty well and had the five blocks but he also isn't a turnover forcer so Boston very few turnovers they don't force that many themselves either but one of the big ways to beat Boston kind of similar to Golden State is another team that gets up a lot of threes is you got to beat them in the possession game and if Philly is never going to force a Boston turnover like this Boston team if you give them enough bites at the apple they'll start to make their threes they'll start to move the ball well if they feel like they're not under pressure there's no threat of turning it over yeah you can I mean if you compare for example this Philly defense with what the Lakers were doing right the Lakers they're pairing a great rim protector with constant pressure on the perimeter through the likes of Vanderbilt or Dennis Schroeder even someone like Reeves like Philly doesn't even have someone like that and so yes you have this issue where you can't wall off get to the basket a lot of times but if you can just continually drive and kick and there's no pressure and you can eventually set yourself up and open three no problem you mentioned also the transition they'll be better in transition in the future and philly probably not going to be a great transition defense uh so yeah, I think there are a, a lot of things in Boston's favor right now. I would say the other thing that if you're a Boston partisan, you would point to is, oh, wait, James Harden actually is not the greatest player of all time like he looked like in game one. And particularly when you consider his pattern of often looking better in game ones after a rest and then what it looked like for him coming back after two days and that there's no two-day break in this series until between game six and seven coming up now for him to go two of 14 from the field after having his greatest playoff game is really disappointing for Philly because yeah Joel is back and they wanted to reintegrate him and I could say maybe Harden wasn't trying as hard or whatever because they didn't need him as much and he could play better at home like yeah you obviously can play better but they need one of those two guys to be the best player on the floor if they're going to win this series they could win some games at home but if they want to win this series yeah they need to get to a point where one of those two guys the best not only the best player on the floor but the best offensive player on the floor Completely correct. And that is is a real challenge for the Sixers moving forward. There are also these questions about like when Philly is at full strength and Boston is at full strength, how how will they incorporate some of these bench guys? I mean, Paul Reed can play in the series. We we definitely know that. But like Melton will shoot better than he did. I mean, he had that wind gust air ball at one point. Um, oh my God. For on a corner three, like it's rare you see a guy miss a corner three, two feet long and two feet left like he did. He did, but do you expect that to be better? Defensively, there are some places where he can help, but I like considering where Boston's best, like the, the flow of their offense is a little bit different there because they have bigger ball handlers. And then McDaniels and Yang, I think, can help out. But they're like, if, if anybody gets into foul trouble or needs, like, they need them to step up, I think that Niang in particular will get attacked on defense. And so we also saw 
a good game from Grant Williams, potentially a good enough game from Grant Williams that Joe Missoula will actually play him now. Uh, plus, yeah. Well, he was always going to play in this series because they he's one of their guys to guard and beat. Correct. And so during the first three quarters, which is the kind of the functional part of this game, Williams plus 19, six points, two of four from the field, all three pointers, as, as you would potentially expect from him. And so that gives Boston another viable, capable rotation player. So when you consider they have a basic top eight of the five starters, Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, Grant Williams, like that's a really good group. That's a group that has a different strengths and you can paper over the weaknesses when you need to. And if player X is not having a great game, then you can try this other thing. And like you brought up Tatum having having a rough game, you know, minutes played and, and efficiency. Al Horford was also one for eight on threes. And considering some of what Philly is going to have to concede if they want to protect the rim, Horford should shoot better than he did. Yeah, O of three on threes from that favored left corner. And of course, Embiid trying to guard Horford, that's one of the big strategic battlegrounds. And the fact that he's getting up eight threes in the limited minutes that he played indicates that their offense is functioning reasonably well. They had definitely a few sorts of shots that won't be repeated, like Marcus Smart fadeaway jumpers and and (laughs) just going right right at guys. But uh, there are two other strategic things I want to talk about here before we move on pj tucker obviously needed for defense for the sixers and they also need his physicality on the boards and overall hustle play because there isn't really anyone else in their starting lineup who plays hard like that but the celtics deployed robert williams uh, about as we anticipated and tucker he's spending a bunch of his time in the dunker spot maybe trying to set flare screens but man that is letting rob just roam around he he caused some big problems in the first half and the other thing they broke broke out was Marcus Smart actually defending Joel Embiid as just a big body. I mean, not as big as Joel, obviously, but just can get underneath him, wear him down. Just another different look where particularly coming back from the knee injury, Joel couldn't quite get comfortable. So to have a third guy they can throw in there with Horford, with Grant Williams and zone up maybe behind the play a little bit more with smart particularly if Joel's going to try to get the ball at the elbow or the nail and I think the Celtics would probably prefer him more trying to go down in the low post where you can double team a little bit more easily and it's just generally harder to get him the ball than let him get the ball at the nail and then uh, that also enables you to do more switching on that Harden and Bede pick and roll which really was not particularly dominant in this game I thought the Sixers didn't go to it enough they had a couple of nice pocket passes out of that but uh so the, the Celtics they have had uh a few things they're able to pull out that I thought made the Sixers offense look a lot worse than than in game one and I I also thought the Celtics did a pretty good job of like not crazy overreacting to Harden's game one performance at the same time as Embiid came back across America BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, let's get into free agency here, Danny. It has been so long since we talked about this is always the weirdest moment of the season to me when we've just been neck deep in the playoffs and all the best teams in the league and hey this guy can't play they so uh, george niang he, he could barely get on the floor and then you go into this free agent list and you're like man how many of these guys could actually be contributing right now at this really high level second round of the playoffs and then i'm like oh yeah i guess kelly cody zeller has to get moved up into rotation because he's, he's in the playoff rotation for the heat so it's just an odd time to go back and remember the entire ecosystem of the league as we've been so locked in on these playoffs but i also think this is a good time to do this because these high level playoff teams are the ones that matter and having the lens of who is really going to survive in the playoffs both from a star standpoint and a role player standpoint is an important one it also helps give perspective on where where this free agency might go as a brief primer i think most dunked on pride people will know this few high level players change teams via free agency anymore that's just you know with the extension rules and placed under the current cba and that could change at some point in the next few years but it hasn't right now so it's a, a weaker class an older class like the best players other with one exception who we're not getting to today um are all in their 30s and that means that you're kind of potentially recruiting a different class of team. Another factor to consider here, though there are a couple that we're kind of, we're going to dance around for now until we have the actual text of the CBA, but that will loom large. So one is this, the second apron, like that's going to have changed decision-making for teams like the Milwaukee Bucks and the Clippers and the Warriors and how punitive it is. I'm again, surprised that the players agreed to something like this, but it looks like that's going to be the rules of the road. Once they, we got get, some, they got some money. They did. So that'll be worth keeping an eye on. And the other one is this is not an offseason where a ton of teams have cap space. It is most notably not an offseason where really good teams have cap space. And the there will be some wiggle, as there always is. And of course, Miami seems like they'll always be a part of it for sign and trades. But I my instinct is for high level players, that's going to be a tougher road this year. So when you think about a player, and we can start this at the top of the small forwards who we're going to start with here, of course, Middleton, that narrows the field of credible suitors because you have A, all of these teams that are potentially either near or near enough to the second apron that are just going to be completely out of it other than his current team with bird rights potential. But then you also have this other group that don't really want to get into that business. And so there are still plenty of teams. Middleton stands out to me among the like high level free agents as somebody who makes sense in a lot of different situations, assuming you're comfortable with how his game is going to age and his age overall. Yeah, and the point of what we're doing here, we're not going to get as much into who has cap space and the motivation of the teams. This is a little bit more just talking about the players themselves, how good we think they are, just generally what we might be comfortable paying them or a team might be comfortable paying them. And of course, the landscape 
we can briefly discuss here. There are a number of teams that seem to have a mandate to get better this season that also do have cap space. And so that would include potentially Charlotte. So if we'll talk about maybe 25 million and over Charlotte, Detroit, Indiana, OKC, Orlando's, but maybe a little under 20 million, but or 25 million, but they could create more through moving on from Gary Harris, Marco Fultz, Jonathan Isaac. You've got San Antonio out there. They're probably maybe the one that doesn't have a mandate to get better, along with Utah, who could have a bunch of money as well. And then, of course, Houston is the biggest one that they project to have as much as $60 million in cap space. So let's begin with Middleton. How do you think he looked in the playoffs, Danny? Of course, they are out now, and that's not a great sign, but just limited to him specifically. There were times where I thought his offensive game looked better. I mean, overall, it's a five-game sample, but he did have 60% true shooting. Um, and Miami challenges Middleton defensively differently than some other teams do because I don't think he could guard Jimmy Butler, but that wasn't really necessarily a health issue. It was also just Middleton has trouble guarding Jimmy Butler. Like This is something we've seen before. So I would say well, he was able to be put up, I would say, a credible performance against KD. He got scored on some, but the Bucks were at least willing to switch him onto there. Whereas against Butler and at this point in his career, or it was two years ago, of course, against KD against Butler, they were not willing to switch him on. They were not. Because when he did, it was just an immediate blow by layup. So that's that to me changes Chris Middleton as a playoff player. If you don't feel like he can even switch at all onto someone like Jimmy Butler and hold his own even reasonably well, if it's just this guy is going to be pretty much a liability, that's very concerning to me. I still really like his offensive fit everywhere, but if he's not going to have that level of defensive fit that's one concern i have about him and it i've uh, of course the age at 31 is another well and, and you can see so you can, the, the and i'm sure there will be middleton supporters who push back and say hey he's still recovering from this stuff he wasn't 100 percent." but you have to do a kind of a, a meshing of that and the passage of time because Middleton can be better physically than he was, but he's also going to be deteriorating physically for other reasons. And so if you put those two things together and most players who aren't the cream of the crop, you know, the LeBron and Steph Curry's of the world, like they they start to drop off pretty significantly in their early to mid 30s. Middleton shooting will help that. I mean, so Middleton per 36 is take he's taken about seven threes per 36 the last few years and was below his standard this year. But with the small sample, I don't concern myself with that career 39 percent three-point shooter was in that vicinity the last few healthier seasons but the idea of Middleton like when you think about his value is to me I think he's more helpful to a to a team as a complementary player on both offense and defense I don't think that he creates enough advantages I don't think that if he's if he's your best offensive player I don't think your offense is going to be great great but if you have somebody else then he fits in beautifully because then he can pick those spots I mean there are times that the Bucks have leaned on him as their crunch time creator which or crunch time like finisher which is extremely unusual like you don't usually see that being a different player than your star Giannis being the other guy kind of makes some of that stuff complicated. But when you think about Middleton, and it's funny because I'll bring up some of these same concerns with Fred Van Vliet when we do point guards, whenever that is, of I actually think Middleton will be worse when you when you move him up in the pecking order. I think that 
he won't he won't make things as much better for his teammates as he has at times in Milwaukee, even if you don't factor in age as much. And then you could throw in for him as well this knee issue going back to a surgery that he had in college appears to be chronic. And for some of these teams that really want to make a step forward in the regular season, it's tough to say that you can count on him for more than 55, 60 games. He's going to need to be managed at this point. Probably shouldn't be playing more than 30 minutes a game in the regular season. So there are all these concerns. He's 31. Defense has slipped. Offense maybe has slipped, although I thought he looked like he was pretty close to back as a shooter. Maybe not as much as an isolation score in that series against Miami. He was being guarded by Gabe Vincent, who's a guy he used to kill kill guys that size in isolation. Maybe he didn't do as much of that, but certainly looked like the 31-year-old version of Chris Middleton that you would have expected coming back from the knee. So the defense, the offense, the age, and then the durability, all major concerns. But then there's also the fact that we're starting with him in the small forge nonetheless, because as is the case every year, there just aren't really very many of these guys and we'll maybe you could say he's competing a little bit with say Jeremy Grant who we have listed as a power forward but does some of the same things or Kyle Kuzma I maybe would rather throw big money at either of those guys who are a little bit younger than him at this point although that he can pass better than they can they could probably defend better than him I guess Harden is out there too. Kyrie, Van Vliet, those are probably the guys. If you really want to take a step forward next year, which is the well, mandate and, and, for Porz- so many and Porzingis, but he plays a completely different position. Yes, and, and many teams already have centers available. So, th- so there are guys I think who can, I, I you saw that list of teams that have a, a lot of money available and need to get better. That's probably six or seven teams. There's six or seven of these dudes most likely. So, and of course, the, all of these teams, incumbent teams, will be very interested in retaining them and are in the bird rights trap. So, I expect the, most of these guys get paid. I expect Chris Middleton to get paid, and it's just a question of how much he wants to still be in Milwaukee. Milwaukee can't really replace him. How much does he want to use leverage to try to increase his value? And would he actually leave Milwaukee? And there's also the potential Giannis extension and what just what this Milwaukee team is going to be going forward as well. So a lot of questions about Middleton. We've analyzed him pretty extensively, but he could be in line for a max contract, at least for a couple of years. Oh, that's probably something we should say too. We haven't gone through. What are the projected maxes for this offseason to put into context some of these salaries that we're talking about? I think you might have it handier than I do. Do you want to just run through it? Yes. So for the 23-24 season, at the cap that we're projecting right now, the zero to six year max we're projecting to start at thirty three point five million. That would be a four year deal with a new team of one forty four. A five year deal with your incumbent team would be one ninety four. So you're finishing up making forty four million in the fifth year of that deal. Then the seven to nine year max. That's thirty percent of the salary cap. Forty point two million starting salary. Four years. With a new team with the 5% raises, 172.9 million over four years. So you're making in the mid 40s by the end of that with the 8% raises. And I would say that the incumbent teams maybe have a little bit more of an advantage because the 8% raise versus the 5% raise starts to add up to be a lot more by the end when Mm -hmm. you're starting with such a massive number to begin with. But that would be a five-year deal, 233 million. That's for the 
seven to nine year experience, 30% max re-signing with their own team. And then the 35% max four-year deal, this would be what Kyrie Irving, for example, is eligible for with 10 plus years of experience. Four-year deal, $201.7 million. And then the five-year deal, which I don't think anyone, maybe Kyrie would be eligible for because he's not that old, but no one projects to get this, I don't think. <laughs> uh, five-year deal with the 8% raises, 35% of the salary cap. Five years, $272 million. That would start at 46 6.9 million and the player would be making 62 million in the fifth year of that deal and then if we're talking about the mid-level based on the previous formula this might go up a little bit but probably not too much with the new cba we're looking at starting at 11.4 million four-year deal 49 million dollars there the taxpayer mid-level is going to start right about 7 million three-year deal 22 million dollars there the bae is starts at 4.5 million that's a two-year deal and then the room exception which i believe is also going to be bumped up to see what the exact numbers are on that but as of the previous formula, the room exception was 5.8 million two-year deal so you make about 12 million there so that, that'll give you some context to for some of these guys let's get to the rest of of the group now we'll do the unrestricted free agents first then the restricted guys i break this into star starter rotation and fringe and so middleton is the only one that i have as a star when i say starter and rotation starter is generally someone that you expect to get in the market for a good starter which is high teens probably low 20s at this point or at least that you think will perform at that level this is part of partly subjective evaluation here then we got josh hart with his crazy non-guaranteed player option surely given the way he's played he'll opt out and be on the market and one would expect that his we've seen this before i i invoked norman powell's typically that when a player who is a pending unrestricted free and changes teams and the team gives up an asset of real value for him, that there is an, at least a preliminary understanding of what it would look for. And the Knicks have the capacity to bring back Josh Hart if they want to. So he could be of interest to, to other teams. I mean, the wings who can credibly defend and who, at least when they're not in Portland, can hit open shots are valuable and heart you know this will cover probably the rest of the rest to the end of his prime he's you know this is an age 28 negotiation so i expect him to stay on the knicks but you could see particularly if the the teams that like i would say it's space to spare rather than the primary target could be interested like for example I think that Josh Hart would be a useful piece in Houston's rotation or in, I mean, Detroit's a little bit different because of their lack of shooting in the front court, but like you could potentially, he would make them better. Indiana, he would be. Oh, fantastic in Indiana. And so I could see those teams being interested. The element that will affect Hart's value, his, his eventual contract the most is do any of those other suitors, if it even really gets to that point, prioritize him because the Knicks will have these incumbent advantages with sufficient bird rights and the team's having a successful year. They may even make the conference finals or the NBA finals, depending on how the series turns out, but also they have the capacity to resign him. So I like, like it always comes to place. I think the more interesting thing with Hart will be the years rather than the dollars because 
if he can get a four year for significant sum, then that's that's great for him. That that would be a, a considering where things looked at different times over the last couple of years would be a phenomenal success. But if it's more of like a two year deal or maybe like two with some sort of element of a 30 year kind of more like what he got from the Pelicans on a deal where he was eventually traded twice, then that would be, you know, be I'd be less enthusiastic for him, but it could still be a reasonable deal. Yeah, at, at 28, this is probably his big chance. And I think he certainly deserves something in the high teens, particularly given that we're expecting the cap to go up. Maybe not these next couple of years at a, a crazy level, but certainly by the start of the 25-26 season, which is when the new TV deal is going to kick in. And I think he's found a home in, in New York, and he's also proven partially in his absence with the Blazers that he really does affect winning and yeah the three-point shooting it's a problem he made some corner threes not really going to shoot above the break anymore but what he does on the fast break and with his offensive rebounding uh, driving kick game and then he's quite rugged defensively that's a valuable player he's a starter I probably he's not for everyone because of that those shooting issues and we may yet see in this postseason that his shooting issues are a little bit of a problem for the Knicks, but the Knicks also have a scoring power forward, a center who doesn't shoot at all. He's actually not the greatest fit there. He's a great fit from a culture standpoint, and a defensive standpoint, and I think he's. We'll see how he defends Jimmy Butler the rest of the series, but I think he's been very solid defensively guarding guys from the Cavs small guards up to Butler. Thought he did a good job in him in Game One. So yeah, I think he's a starter level player, and you maybe get a little concerned with him being undersized and that he's reliant on his speed and athleticism them towards the end of a contract like that but i think he's someone who there just aren't enough small forwards like indiana just has literally no one at that position for example he's gonna have a market and i I hope he gets paid because he deserves it since we're focusing and part of the reason you and i focus on unrestricted free agents is that their negotiations are just fundamentally different because you you don't have to you're not taking a risk if you're negotiating with josh hart you don't have to be like well what if the knicks match are we tying up this money all those sorts of things and you can negotiate a sign and trade but it's 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 a lot more common to see this level player and below change teams as unrestricted free agents than restricted. And the next player is the one who is the subject of a true first-time situation and the reporting from Shamstranya of The Athletic that the Memphis Grizzlies will not bring back Dylan Brooks under any circumstance. It under is, any circumstance. It is surreal, in not only because... Things like this don't happen. Like there are plenty of times where teams don't want to bring back players, but for it to come out publicly roughly two months before free agency and for a team that is good right now and and needs a player like him is stunning. And I don't know what to interpret from it. You know, like I know what actually, sorry, I don't know what to like. I It didn't come from Brooks or his camp and his agent is already decrying it as being inaccurate. And the, the challenge there in terms of assessing is that the agent has to say that either way because so the agent could be correct and that it is inaccurate, but they also could be incorrect because it not only does it nuke his leverage because the team that has bird rights allegedly is not interested, but also this is the Memphis Grizzlies, the team that has relied on him, that knows him better than everybody else and has given him a lot of chances. And so theoretically, 
were this reporting to be correct, it is a huge flashing neon sign to the rest of the league of this guy is not worth your trouble. Yeah, and I would certainly be livid as his agent that that got out because clearly it's not coming from that side of things for the reasons that, that you stated. And now it could just be, I don't know that the Grizzlies like wanted this out there. Like Shams does actually report stuff that people don't want out there. It, it certainly to do your job as, as a newsbreaker, you have to maintain relationships and get stuff out there that people want. Like, that's why they give it to you. But you can also, like, actually <laughs> report and, like, breaks to get stuff out there that people don't want out there. So maybe that's the case this time. But also, perhaps the thought from the Grizzlies side is just for our organization to move forward and know that he's not going to be part of things anymore. We have two months until the start of free agency, and we just want people in our organization to know that now that this is a, a new age and that we are going to try to reset the culture here that you can't do it with john morant who was apologetic post game again about the off-court distractions that he caused this year and and why and that that was part of their downfall so this is in some ways maybe brooks is going to be sacrificial here although talking a bunch of shit to lebron james and then playing absolutely terribly is <laughs> that was clearly not the way uh, to impress anybody in memphis and and particularly after his foibles in the playoffs a, a year ago as well although at least he had a 30 point playoff game after he broke gary payton's wrist last year but dylan brooks is a player he's a good buy low candidate. like he is an all defense level of defender his ability to guard basically any position switch on to basically anybody he can play as a switch guy or he can play a more conventional scheme just trying to pressure up guard guys off the ball and he's going to get in foul trouble eventually and the real question that i have about him is offensively is he just going to completely torpedo you are we looking at the new matisse Thibel now offensively or do you take a chance on him hoping that he can get back to being competent but also that because whenever he's been competent offensively it seemed like well the way that you did that is you just let him run a bunch of the offense which you can't do either so can he potentially find that middle ground will he be a little humbled at 27 or is he just so crazy that he has to play the way he's gonna play and that's that's just what it's gonna be my concern there's been some reporting out there that dylan brooks wants a larger role is that he any team that gives him that is making a grave mistake because brooks He's not to say he's woefully inefficient as an individual offensive player. His career high true shooting is 53%. That was his rookie year was like six seasons ago. And since then, 50%, 51%, 52%, 52%, 49%. And it wasn't a situation where like, oh, he's taking too many shots. And if you pared down his role, he would be more efficient, though. Incidentally, his lowest usage year was his most efficient, his rookie year. He's been bad in a lot of different capacities offensively. And part of what I've been low on Brooks this whole time is the idea of now that the Grizzlies have new expectations. It's not only can you do the actual job, because like defensively, obviously he can't. It's will you accept the job? And with Brooks, to me, the answer from the 22-23 season appears to be no, he can't do it on the court, and no, he won't accept it off the court. And that's a big problem. It's a big part of why I criticize Zach Kleiman for losing their fun their their flexibility without addressing other people for this this most scarce position in the league. And it's a challenge. And so let's let's take the reporting at face value, say that Dylan Brooks isn't going to be there. He absolutely is an NBA player. 
I there are plenty of teams, though probably not one of the eight to ten best, where I would have him as a starter. So like there are, he, there are a lot of teams that he can make better, and sort of like I talked about with Josh Hart, I wonder not if anybody will prioritize him, but will prioritize him with the means that they have. So maybe with a team like let's say the Indiana Pacers, who he would really help. Maybe he's not like your number one acquisition, but he's a part of the overall picture that you want to paint. Yeah, it would also maybe help a, a, a team that could play him as more of a power forward offensively. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would minimize some of his issues, but then there aren't enough threes to go around. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, if you have like more of kind of a shooting four, I think though, I don't know what Brooks is going to get. I don't think it's going to be more than the mid-level. If he's not going back to Memphis, hard to see a team sign and trading for him. Hard to see a team that's trying to build a young culture bringing him in. And those are the cap space teams. But this is something that I used to talk about with Tim Bontemps years ago. He would always say, if someone gets a lot less than you think their talent would suggest in the market, it's probably because they're a little crazy. And some of that stuff is just known behind the scenes. And Dylan Brooks's craziness uh, has been out there for all to see. I mean, is it possible that he just gets like the minimum? I don't think so. I think some team will give him, you know, at bare minimum, the taxpayer mid-level. I think he gets closer to the non-taxpayer, um, whether it's from, it could be from a cap space team. It's just just in that range. It's also a little bit unfortunate for Brooks that some of the, yes, like OKC is a, is a young enough team that they might not want him to, to mess up the culture, but they also have Lou Dort. And I don't think you want to bring in Dylan Brooks when you have Dort. And Brooks, unfortunately for him, is not a sufficient upgrade over Lou Dort where you would prioritize him in any of those sorts of ways. Maybe you duplicate it. And like if a team like the yeah, Orlando Magic. It, it seems like a contender will just bring him in as a flyer. That's exactly. kind of more what I think of a taxpayer mid-level type of signing. It'd be a great fit in the Lakers. That's true. I mean, I wouldn't. They have, I, they have Jared Vanderbilt. I It wouldn't <laughs> stun me. It, I haven't done the full math on the capacity. If he's going to take like, because to me, if you get a deal in that range, you probably want to sign short term. Like they don't really have the rotation. But I'm like, could you? Could the Knicks have him and Josh Hart just as the like just go hard after this type of player bet that Tibbs can rehabilitate the value? Because for Brooks, I mean, but the problem is playing time. So, yeah, all those sorts of questions. Yeah, he uh, he's yeah. The, he's the Let, most. Let's, uh, yeah, let, let's roll through some more of these guys. I mean, I, I had Dylan Brooks in the starter category before uh, this recent turn down into rotation. BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Kelly Oubre is 27. There is a thought perhaps that he had turned over a new leaf two years ago in Charlotte, shooting a ton of threes. This year, he did the same, didn't make them, didn't cover himself in glory. Also, a guy who low-key misses more games than you might expect. And just, to, I think the fact that he was went to a winning situation in Golden State and just completely didn't help them at all is going to be kind of a stain where you would think his market for the type of player that he is who can at least shoot some it'll get him up maybe he makes it maybe he doesn't 
and athleticism, better guarding smaller players than bigger players, but because he just has never really been able to fit in very well for a winning group, you have to think that his market is going to be more similar type of contracts that he's gotten previously. He's gotten a couple of two-year deals for just into eight figures, and it seems like maybe that's where it's headed again for him. Totally reasonable. There are yeah. there are a couple of older players who I think can help a team, but it's just how like they're the situations will matter a lot. Joe Ingles, maybe he comes back to the Bucks. I thought he his passing and shooting helped them at times, but his limitations defensively, of course, made it so that he didn't play a lot in key moments for them. Danny Green, yeah, he he proved I think this year that he deserves a deal around that taxpayer mid level again, maybe even the regular mid level for like a year and a second non guaranteed year. It's just a question of whether in Milwaukee he's a great fit. He, I think he's answered the health questions at 35 and he can still shoot and pass a little bit. But of course, is he's got some major playoff defensive limitations. So someone who might actually fit better on a younger-ish team as just an organizer. I would actually love to see him in Houston if they don't get hardened. Yeah, or even in Orlando, he so some of these teams that have a lot of athleticism but just don't really know how to play yet, he would be a pretty good fit as someone who could play on or off the ball and be a connector there. Danny Green, kind of s- similar vein, not as a player, but just older, older guy. He's looking like in, he didn't play a ton in that Knicks series, but he's looking cl- at least closer to toast, which is unfortunate. I've been a huge fan of his. Yeah, he's for almost such a, long a time. four at this point. Yeah. And then like TJ Warren, I mean, huge fan of him and his game, but it's it's pretty telling when you're this far out from your injury on a team that so desperately needs anyone who can play and Money Williams isn't really going to him at all. And Nash and Vaughn didn't yeah. really either in Brooklyn. I, I thought he looked okay at the start of the year in Brooklyn. Maybe he's worn down dealing with an injury. I do think he needs to get his body right in terms of maybe losing a little bit of weight. Like he does, he doesn't have the same body type that he did before he got hurt. Oh, uh, the the Miami buy low vibes on TJ Warren for next year are incandescent. <laughs> Hamadou Diallo, very athletic finisher. Not sure if he knows how to play. He's never really played on a real team. He's been languishing in Detroit for a while. Remember that. Speaking of incandescent, the Hamadou Diallo Sfi Mihaliuk trade. Yes. <laughs> that we were like, why are they doing this? And then Sfi never really did anything after that. But Diallo, maybe we've seen how Josh Akogi has been able to play well. Still only 24. He's a, an amazing athlete. Huh. But also, his, his, like, age, probably, his, his yeah. age is also his shooting percentage from three. So that's. <laughs> Yeah, and we've seen Gary Payton and Akogi. Bruce Brown has way more ball skills than him. But we've seen those guys be able to maybe thrive on certain teams that have a lot of shooting and just need some defense. And his finishing at the rim could be really interesting. So someone who's maybe worth a flyer for a good team. I actually really don't like him on a bad team because those teams generally don't have enough shooting. And that's why he's been, even for a team that has been awful the last few years, has been in and out of the rotation. Yeah, and and by the way, one of the things with Diallo, he has become a more efficient player individually, but has done it by just not taking threes anymore. 
It has a bet by improving there. This year, he took 0.8 three-pointers per 36 minutes of action in about a 1,000 minutes of play. Yeah, and I would consider him like way worse even than a Kogi or Gary Payton. I would too. As a shooter. He, my operative assumption is he's never even going to be able to make corner threes at all. Yeah, I mean, he, okay, you, yeah. Uh, so here's a different way of putting it. Hamadou Diallo made five three-pointers in a 1,000 minutes of action this year. It's not that much, really. A few other names I'll just run through quickly here. Daniel House, who I thought was really going to help Philly this year, has not been in the rotation. He is a player option, and they got him for the biannual. He's making about $4 million. I expect him to probably pick that up. I don't think he would have offers other than the minimum. I, I thought he was really good for Utah last year, and uh, that was uh, apparently a flash in the pan. Royce O'Neal is a partial guarantee. I imagine the Nets will pick that up. Both House and O'Neal are 30. And then Jetty Osman, the Cavs, he, he's got an early guarantee date of June 23rd. I imagine they'll just pick that up because they wouldn't really be able to get to meaningful cap space even if they do move on from him, unless they made another significant move. But there's a, there's no other than moving on from Ricky Rubio or Isaac Okoro. They don't really have a way to get into maybe a 15 million in cash. I said, even then, you probably want to just stay over anyway. So well, I imagine Osman will be back. I, I think he will be too, especially now with Kevin Love not there. I had thought that Osman could be a casualty of just getting too close to the tax because they – they have to, presumably they're going to retain or retain the salary slot for Karis LeVert. And so LeVert yeah. plus Osman plus somebody like Love plus the mid-level exception, that might not have worked tax-wise. But if you remove Love from the equation, probably going to have it in Osman. $6.7 million for somebody who can play, especially in, as you're getting closer. And then you'd have bird rights on him after this year. Like I think you should pick it up. Restricted free agents. Cameron Johnson. Wait, can I do quick eight, quick interjection? Yeah. The yeah. fact that we only had this this many players to talk about is a sign of just how how limited this position is. Like we so that's in the star and starter and rotation level. Rotation level. We're talking about ten guys because we expect House and O'Neill to not become free agents, potentially Jetty Osman as well. Ten. Yeah. And and we're stretching even to call some of these guys rotation. Like to call Diallo a rotation. He's not really rotation, he's a flyer. And, he and yeah, he more in the fringe. So category. that that gives you an indication of of where of where this is, and it's not like it's not like they're being underserved scouting and everything else like that. It's just extremely scarce. So then that moves us up to kind of the top of the restricted. Well, and, and quickly, just on that point, there are maybe a few other players at other positions that could play some three or uh, Jeremy Grant, Kyle Kuzma, I mean Tory Craig, but are probably better as fours even someone like warren is and ingles are really almost more fours defensively at this point but yeah let's move on to cam johnson now he's age 27 remember he was 23 when he was drafted so he's finishing that rookie deal this is his one chance to get paid he turned down a deal from the suns he i think he's played pretty well he didn't get attacked defensively in the playoffs it wasn't really that type of team he was going against the way dallas did to him last year with luka Doncic and and brunson so perhaps that memory has faded from people's minds seems like as a restricted free agent and particularly because brooklyn traded for him there's no reason for brooklyn to just let him go i mean he's probably their second best player at this point maybe third best behind claxton so i think he probably gets re-signed and he's looking at a pretty damn nice payday a couple of stats that i think are important for cam johnson this year 62 percent true shooting on 21 usage that is an uptick of 
three percent in usage. Compared- did you say sixty six percent true shooting? Sixty two percent. Sixty two percent. Sixty two percent on twenty one usage. So that's an uptick in usage of about three percent. Basketball References version of the set and roughly the same true shooting. 40% on threes, taking 7.7 per 36 is actually worse than he did last year and roughly around his career average. Career average is 39 on eight. So we're, we're right in that same range. And for Johnson, the idea that he shoots well enough and can, you know, I still don't love his inside the arc game. It has shown a little bit of improvement, got to the line a lot more this year, particularly as a net, actually. He, he can uncork some big dunks at the rim at yeah, times, too. He can. And limited defensively, catastrophic will be an, an open question. He could potentially improve a little bit with time. So someone who helps your spacing, who makes your who who makes your offense better, and who could be a problem if you're a high, high level team in 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 a playoff series defensively but like how many of the teams that could realistically bid on him or retain him in the Nets case are really going to be that it's pretty low so I yeah I think he's gonna I think he's looking for more than 20 million um and and we'll get it but oh he he'll for sure get but it's whether but whether it's like 25 DeAndre Hunter can get DeAndre Hunter can get 20 million he can, can get a lot more than that okay I, I would say i would say on his defense in most matchups and particularly in the regular season like he's he's enough of a guy that teams aren't going to be like oh this guy's got a target on him so i i think especially when really the limitation high level playoff is, series perhaps when the limitation is more lateral mobility than positional size like that it just is a basic thing it makes it harder for a guy to get targeted so yeah i, I think that's I think a lot of teams just don't, particularly in the regular season, are not going to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to put Cam Johnson in, in pick and roll, even though maybe they could and maybe they should do it more. So I, I think his the perception around the league is that he's totally adequate defensively. And when you consider the level of shooter that he is, he's I would say he's above average for that player type. So I think his floor is $22 million a year. I think it's going to be particularly because this is his one payday and we've seen what shooters a few years ago have gotten and even if you compare him because he almost has like shooting guard type of skills offensively so i think his floor to me is like 22 million a year and i could see him in like 26 27 even. but what could depress this market is that the the nets are should be widely expected to retain cam johnson and yeah but also i think there are a lot of teams that are just gonna have more money than they know what to do with mm-hmm. and his skill set plays extremely well with all of these teams we're talking about that want to get better desperately need shooting but also would like maybe someone a little bit younger yeah so, so you, you could see now maybe it doesn't end up being a straight up offer sheet but you could definitely see his agent working things well enough to have a market and yeah so maybe the nets retain him but i don't i don't this one doesn't necessarily feel like like if, if i'm his agent i don't do the thing where we're gonna agree to a, a deal at the beginning hell of no and i'll give two t- like, i'll give yeah. two potential restricted suitors that uh, unless they blow me out of the water yeah. with like 26 or 27 million a year yeah and then you're just because then you're not, you're not taking on all you, there isn't much risk because you're getting a number that you're happy with so the two teams that i've kind of circled as being compelling restricted suitors are the pacers and the thunder so the pacers he doesn't solve the defensive part of it, but you add him with Halliburton and Turner, as you know, who got renegotiated and extended, and that's a group that's a pain in the ass to defend and really interesting. And then from the from the Thunder perspective, 
you don't know yet whether Chet Holmgren is going to make more sense defensively as a four or five, but you have him in the front court along with Dort and Holmgren and all these other guys that they've cultivated over the years. And I think he makes a lot of this stuff fit together better. And so then like you have him and Shea and everything like, so those two teams and especially in the Thunder case, like this is a great opportunity for them to spend. But if you end up striking out or you're just driving up the price, like the downside isn't as severe for them as it might be for some of the other teams. Yeah, and particularly with the new rules, it hasn't solved everything with restricted free agency, but it is a little bit less punitive in terms of the the match rules now for the CBA. Any other of these names you want to hit on briefly in the restricted market? Yeah, um, Matisse Thibel and Cam Reddish. I mean, both of them have their have their believers, have their sales pitches. Thibel, the defensive playmaker on the perimeter, though I think his possession by possession defense gets overrated because of his prodigious blocks and steals, but he can be effective. And the three point shot. It's funny how he and Josh Hart kind of changed their identities as they as they were traded. But I don't think I think Thibault is like you have to think of him as your fifth best offensive player. And so if you're you know, if the goal is to have him like start or something like that. And so I think there's a place for him in an NBA rotation. But him being restricted, I think, allows the Blazers to really squeeze. And I always say that restricted free agency is all about falling in love. And I think that's going to be really hard for both Thibault and Reddish because both of them have had chances on good teams and kind of bad teams alike and haven't really lit the world on fire. So why would someone offering more, like think about offering more than the mid-level for a player like that? Maybe you could pry them away, but like, why would you roll, roll those dice on those players other than age rather than someone else? Yeah, they're just going to benefit from the fact that a lot of teams need wings. And I think that Thibel certainly can be in a rotation for a non-playoff team and help them or a first round type of playoff team. It's just when you get into the playoffs, like, man, we don't have to guard this guy. But he deserves some credit. Took 3.9 three-point attempts per game and made 38% of them. So that's progress. And being in a less pressure environment when it's not, oh my God, it's James Harden and Joel Embiid throwing me this pass and they expect me to knock it down might help him. So we'll see with both he and Reddish being on the same team and being restricted. I don't think, though, that anyone is excited enough about them to want to give them an offer sheet. Maybe this could be one of those things where the Blazers are like, all right, we'll do the agent a favor and make him unrestricted if he really is going to have an offer. But Or like, a, or you I just think, structure yeah. it as a low-stakes sign-in trade where the other team takes gets like costs them a, a very small asset or something, maybe. And you would only yeah, the only other name here that I consider to even really matter at all potentially is Romeo Langford, who has shown something on defense. He's been an awful, awful shooter, also has struggled mightily with injuries. He's with the Spurs. Doesn't necessarily feel like he's someone they're gonna give a qualifying offer to. He should probably just take it if they do. But someone who maybe could be a, I guess now third draft player since he's already been traded. It's still only 23. Has he definitely has the physical skills to be an NBA wing. It's just the shooting and the overall scoring package has been totally lacking. Couple little news things we gotta hit briefly. Chris Paul, it's been reported that he will be reevaluated in a week. I think that was from yesterday. So yeah, and the, the Suns the, cl- the Suns claimed he was has a strained groin and is day to day, which is complete crap. Like if you have a stra- strained groin, you're not playing in the next couple days. Yeah, and, and the reporting was that they're expecting him not to be available in games three to five, and I would say that that means the most likely outcome is that the series will be over after Game Five. But it's possible the Suns could eke out a couple of. 
wins and maybe he can come back, but then he'll be limited and it just, it sucks. And then I think we can save the rest of this stuff well, I mean, for so, just when we go through the positions and free agency. I mean, we can cra- congratulate Joel Embiid for winning MVP. And yeah. something that Dan Feldman noted, which is which is really interesting, is that this is the first, in our opinion, and obviously our opinion is distinctly far from the majority, each of the three of us didn't pick Embiid as the MVP. It's the first quote-unquote wrongly decided MVP in more than a decade. The last one was Derrick Rose over LeBron James and Dwight Howard in 2011. And how that ages, how that looks, will be something we keep an eye on. I mean, Embiid was certainly in the conversation. This isn't a a, a situation where it's like, oh, it was a mile and a half off. And I I'm happy that Embiid will have will have an MVP. Like, just it's I you know you, you think about these things 20, 30 years out. Like, because now that I've been covering the league for long enough, it's like, well, to reflect the kind of player that he was. But at the same point. I don't believe in life, lifetime achievement MVPs. So it's like, so I'm, I'm really happy for him individually, personally. His story is fantastic. There are lots of places you can read about that. And I strongly encourage you to. The Euron Weitzman, the part in Tanking to the Top about Embiid and his growing up is fantastic if you haven't read that yet. So I'm of, I'm kind of of two minds about it. Yeah, this wasn't egregiously wrongly decided by any means. Same. And I think if you're going to say just in terms of the actual player and the legacy and stuff, easily the worst player to win MVP over the last 10 years has been was Russell Westbrook. And we were kind of on board with it because he had played more than the other guys that year and also his clutch performance. And I think you could make the argument that in terms of the value to that team that he was the mvp that's maybe the one that if i look back on it i might have wanted to go in a different direction but i don't think like james harden is like so much better either Kawhi would have been the guy in 16 17 for me that i would have focused in on maybe more because that was probably his greatest regular his regular season his last great regular season as it would turn out unfortunately but and Kawhi, you think historically deserves an mvp more than westbrook but i it's about that one season so i don't have an issue with joel winning this i would have gone with Jokic. i thought it wasn't as close as maybe some people did but joel Embiid had a totally mvp worthy season and there were legitimate arguments to go with him over Jokic. so yeah i think it is interesting this is the first one i disagreed with uh, over that long a period of time but uh, this is no great tragedy in my mind compared to say some of the all nba selections i think are coming out next week I expect to have some more issues with those as we have over the years. Wholeheartedly agree. All right, that will do it for now. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.